Two years ago, Andrea won a Fitbit at a work function. There were certainly a lot less expensive prizes too, things ranging from $5 to $200, and this was one of the pricier items for sure. In case you've been living under a rock for the last few years, a Fitbit is an electronic bracelet that automatically tracks your exercise and your sleep and gives you the option of tracking other health-related stuff too. I don't know if one's the right word, but we had a white elephant at our Christmas party and it was what I ended up with. I know the term white elephant, but I don't really understand what you mean when you say you had one at your Christmas party. So a white elephant is a gift exchange. So our managers purchased a bunch of gifts and we each drew one from a pile. And then you have the ability going in turns to take someone else's gift or keep your own. And then you can sort of see what everyone has. And if you have the opportunity to steal their gift, you can. The term white elephant basically means a possession that's more trouble than it's worth. It came about because in Siam, white elephants were sacred. Receiving one was a great honour, but it was also a curse because they were so expensive to keep. Andrea didn't know it at the time, but her Fitbit was a literal white elephant. Well, not a literal, it wasn't literally, it literally embodied the term white elephant. Welcome to Think Digital. Wait, no, wait, hang on. We had to change the name because it was already taken, but as luck would have it, the station recently acquired some pretty cutting-edge radio program naming technology, so I'll just fire that up. We want a three-word name, like, like This American Life. See if that can push us into the mainstream. Something technology-ish. Okay, it's come up with something. Arrive Polytechnic Cornstar. It's not very good. Put erstwhile twine. Right, it's not ideal. I'm sorry about this. It was a cost-saving measure. Spring statue amplifier. Crap aristocratic parting. And they just keep getting worse. Think digital futures. Oh, Jesus. Well, we haven't got uh, a lot more time to waste. Welcome to Think Digital Futures, where every week I'm going to bring you stories from and about the digital age, and I'll ask experts to give us their insights. In this episode, we'll be looking at tracking technology, so Fitbits, those other bracelets you wear, Apple Watches, some of the tracking apps. We'll be taking a look at the quantified self movement, people who track every aspect of their lives. It could be everything from how many steps they took in a day to how often they cut their toenails. We'll especially be looking at how the technology that we program as people also programs us. And we'll look at whether this technology is for everybody. But now back to Andrea and her new Fitbit. I remember in the beginning being very excited about it and thinking this was something that would just somehow, I don't know, I mean, I think that that's the promise with a lot of technology is that this one small thing is sort of going to catapult you into into your best self or greatness and that's not often the case, but that was definitely my idea in the beginning was that somehow this was going to be sort of like magic and just make me super fit, I don't know. <laughs> And you were happy to to get that, yeah? Yeah, um, I exercise a decent amount and I just thought that it would be something that would be a neat tool. I didn't think about it too much. I just thought like, oh, this is neat. I don't know what it does. I want one. And that worked for you at the beginning? 
I guess in the beginning, it was just, it was really exciting. It was this discovery period of, oh, like people say that you should walk 10,000 steps in a day, but sometimes I walk 50,000 or 15,000 and wow, that's super great. What are the features that you liked about it? I like, you know, it would give you a report of the week and it would say your best day was Wednesday and you logged 20,000 steps and then you did all of these activities it would just give you different badges for reaching milestone levels of steps, you know, 50,000, 100,000, etc. So there were five dots. Each dot represented 2,000 steps. And so each time you got 2,000 steps, a dot would light up. And in the beginning, it was exciting. It was like achieving a goal, which felt really good. I, like a lot of people with eating disorders, I'm sort of A-type and goal-driven and a perfectionist. And so reaching that, like, step mark, the bracelet would buzz... And I really enjoyed that. It felt like getting a pat on the back from somebody for, like, doing a good job. Andrea's eating disorder started in her teens. She says she was a chubby kid. My dad would sort of make me stand in in front of the mirror and say that I was fat, and that really stuck with me. And so um, my mom tried to help me lose weight by making healthier meals and bringing me to exercise and things like that. Um, And that was really working at first. But then I think with that sort of teenage mentality, I decided, like, oh, if doing this is good, then overdoing it would be great. So I developed anorexia and then just had people incessantly sort of bugging me about it, like, oh, you're losing too much weight. What are you doing? Why are you losing weight? Eat more. Like everyone was just sort of bothering me about it. So I decided that I needed to start eating more. Um, And then I don't really remember when I decided to start throwing up or like how I thought that that would be okay, but I did. At first, she would just eat normal meals and then make herself throw them up. But when she was in college, the pattern developed into something even worse. I went through a pretty bad breakup with my high school sweetheart. We'd been together through high school and went to college together. And when that ended, that was when the binging and purging really started. Andrea's bulimia continued for a couple of years, and then she started to recover gradually with a few relapses along the way. She'd been obsessively counting calories for years, but she eventually discovered intuitive eating, which basically meant paying attention to how hungry or how full she was at any given moment and just respecting what her body was telling her. And that had been the way that I was eating for a couple of years at that point, and it was going really well. Um, I wasn't having any sort of problem with eating disorder thoughts or behaviors at that point. And that is when she won the Fitbit. Mm. Her white Mm. elephant. So there were lots of carrots, but there are sticks as well, yeah? Yeah, um, I would say the biggest stick was, I think what sort of started turning it to something unhealthy for me was every week, in addition to your best day, it would also tell you what your worst day was. So no matter what, I mean, you could have run a marathon six days that week and run a half marathon on the seventh day, and your report for that week would have this sad face next to the day that you ran the half marathon and sort of a, you know, you really could do better (laughs) no matter what you did. And that really started to subconsciously sort of grate on me, I guess. It was just this constant feeling of there's something you could be doing better even though you really couldn't. As someone who's who's been bulimic, the thing for me was that, so first of all, it was driving me to do more activity, which exercise addiction wasn't something I had struggled with before I started using this. So it 
set up that part, but then at the same time, even if you don't log your food, it gives you a calorie burn. So it tells you, again, how many calories you're, quote, allowed to have that day. And so because I would be pushing myself to do so much exercise, the calorie allowance would be quite high. Um, So I would be busy during the day working and doing everything else and maybe eat small meals. And then at the end of the day, my blood sugar would be low from my daily life and all the exercise. And then I would see that I had this massive calorie allowance and, and binge, essentially, just feel like I had permission to eat and then become uncomfortably full. And that was when when the binge purge cycle sort of came back into it for me. Was there a low point that you or, or those people close to you identified? Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was, um, you know, it's, and this is, I mean, I'm pretty, I'm able to be pretty open about this, but this is even hard for me to say. Um, when you're, like when someone walks in on you throwing up your dinner because you just can't deal with the fact that, let me back up. I was exercising almost every day because I was sort of compelled to by reaching these arbitrary goals. And then um, one day my husband took me to brunch and then we went to a movie and it was a rainy day and it was dark early. And by the time that we got home, it was time for dinner and it was quite late and it was Saturday. And so um, there just really wasn't an opportunity in there for me to go walk the dog or go work out or anything like that. And I was looking at the bracelet and it had only two dots, meaning that I was, you know, far under the 10,000 steps that I had to meet at a minimum to be okay with myself that day. And I just was staring at it in the car and started crying and telling my husband that I didn't think that I deserved to eat dinner that day. And it just sort of hit me like, oh my goodness, like that's crazy. I'm a human. I deserve to eat food because I'm alive and and I have a metabolism and it. I need to nourish myself. And I really just couldn't shake the feeling that I was not allowed to eat dinner that day. And then I did and I threw it up and it was just, I mean... If I was looking at someone else doing that, I'd, you know, I'd want to, like, like smack them awake, you know? Like, that's, that's no way to live, and it's not a sustainable way to live. So that was definitely the, the sort of rock bottom. Do you think that certain type of people are, are more likely to have problems with this kind of technology? Yeah, I mean, my inclination would definitely be that people with sort of perfectionistic tendencies would gravitate towards this. Um, And so those are a lot of the same people who seem to, I guess, fall into eating disorders. There's a genetic component to that, obviously, but I think that that sort of personality, just being a perfectionist, lends itself to always to continuous improvement. And that if you're tracking something, you're identifying shortcomings or weaknesses. And so that mindset might jump to what can I do to to become optimal what you often see is you see people um, doing extreme amount of exercise. They, they might have their tracker that says they should be aiming for 10,000 steps, but this person has decided that 50,000 is going to be their goal because they want to far exceed people's expectations or be seen as an elite athlete. Dr Vivian Lewis is an assistant professor in psychology at the University of Canberra, and she's a practising psychologist. She specialises in body image and eating disorders, and she's the author of the book Positive Bodies. 
So they will exercise to extremes to the point where they're spending a lot of time engaged in that particular activity. It's coming at the expense of their socialising, their relationships, their family situation, maybe the expense of their job. So where whatever they're doing starts to take over and becomes the number one priority in their life at the expense of other things that they would be enjoying. She's treating more and more people who are tracking the food that they eat and the exercise they do. It is becoming very obsessive, so where people are monitoring everything they're doing. And what it's led to is quite an obsession with getting the numbers right. So people can actually become quite distressed if they don't reach what they think is a reasonable target. So what, what I'm seeing in my practice is more and more people getting really, really anxious over monitoring what they're doing day to day and also then experiencing depression when they're not um, meeting those particular targets that they've actually set for themselves. Do you think that people who already had disorders or, or say in the past are the type of people who may have already may have had disorders then have found this technology and are using it and are, are, are having problems? And or do you think that the technology itself is exacerbating or even creating some problems? Mm, I think it's a bit of both, actually. So I think people who, are, who have a natural tendency to be a bit anxious and to be a bit obsessive about things, these sorts of devices, these people will latch onto those because it sort of feeds that obsession. At the same time, you get people, you know, who used to be perfectly ha- happy doing their regular amount of uh, exercise, eating, you know, in sort of moderation and having treats and that sort of thing, all of a sudden become very aware of the amount of calories that they're consuming and then become quite obsessed with it. So it can actually go both ways. It sort of feeds certain people's obsessive personalities and then for others it can actually create that obsessiveness and then the mental health difficulties that follow along with that. But certainly if you can look at things in moderation and you can use it in the way that it's intended to be used, then people can actually see some benefit from it. This is Think Digital Futures, where we tell stories from and about the digital age. I'm still trying to figure out how to quantify the description of what's transformed in me uh, since I've been tracking. This is Brandon Corbin. I'm based in Indianapolis, Indiana, so kind of right in the middle of the state Earlier this year, Brandon published his 2015 annual report, but it wasn't for his business. In fact, there wasn't even a single dollar sign in the report. Rather than financial data, he reported his personal data. Instead of a corporate statement, he had a corporeal statement. Um, His balance sheet balanced the time he spent between the sheets. Rather than a cash flow statement, he had a urine flow statement. He peed all over the Midwestern United States. Instead of a profit and loss statement, he included a cider and wine statement. I can keep going. In place of reviewing operations, he reviewed his work and productivity. Actually, that that one's kind of the same thing, reviewing operations and work and productivity.
it would just make for such a phenomenal story. And, and yet I'm still just too afraid to share all of it. So this one really covers all that stuff that I am comfortable with, like what I figured out about the optimal time for me to go to sleep is and how I basically ignore that. The biggest one from a food intake, and this is an interesting, is so ciders kind of became my alcohol of choice. During winter, I like wine, you know, and then summer starts and I start drinking ciders. And then all of a sudden, my insatiability for any candies just goes up just in direct relation to uh, what's happening with my cider intake. And so now I'm in the process of kind of cutting my cider back down and replacing it with fairly bad Pinot Grigio. All up, he tracked 145 different activities, totaling nearly 22,000 individual events. Nearly one third of those were reported as positive events, like exercise, drinking water, positive thoughts, healthy eating. And he reported just under a third as negative events. So when he drank alcohol, when he binge watched TV, uh, unhealthy eating and negative thoughts. I've been involved in trying to understand how my brain works from when I was a little kid. I was diagnosed ADHD, whatever. So I, I, I grew up young, not, not trusting my mind. And so I kind of always had an interest in trying to say, okay, well, if that's not real, then what can I do to kind of hack it, control it, train it? So at seven is when the school finally had me talk to some people and figure out what's going on because I didn't play well in the system. At 25, I had another breakdown. That one, it was in the 2000s. And so they're like, hey, you're bipolar. I said, okay, I'm bipolar. And, you know, hop on that medicine merry-go-round. But there was one thing that kind of stuck out for me personally as a seven-year-old and as a 25, 26-year-old that made sense both then and now. And that was this idea of writing your emotions down. Because then you can kind of figure out your triggers, figure out what works. I'm like, yeah, that makes all the sense in the world, right? But, uh, you know, honestly, who's going to do that? And I knew I wasn't going to do it. So Brandon built a smartphone app called Nomi. It's a fully customizable tracker. It lets you choose the icons and the names and units of measurement of the things you want to track. Say you want to track how many coffees you had this morning. So you whip out your phone, tap on the app, tap coffee, tap two, and you're done. And you're on your way to creating your own annual report or your weekly report or whatever you want. The whole idea was I wanted to be able to track something faster than my daughter texted. We were out at dinner and we're talking and all of a sudden she gets a text. She takes her phone out, reads it, replies, puts it back into her pocket in literally five seconds. And I'm like, that was one, that was impressive. And two, if I could track as fast as that, I would probably do it. I track 125 different things and I don't really spend that much time in the app and I track, you know, 60, 70 times a day. Brandon has tracked all kinds of everyday activities and he says it's helped him a lot. So sexuality is one that I have used Nomi for tracking, you know, everything, you know, all of the good, the bad, the actions, all of that. And so there's been a lot of real kind of interesting things that I'm not talking about, you know, until I get the intestinal fortitude to do it. The one that has been probably the most transformational for me is depression. I usually run pretty red line, you know, for about four or five weeks. I can be running a thousand miles an hour and then I would hit a wall and I would be depressed for a week. But then I started tracking and what I realized was that when I actually was depressed, I was only depressed for about two to three days, no more than three days in a row. But the reverberation of that depression lasted for 
a week. And that was unmotivated. That was, you know, I, I was lethargic, all of these other things that just kind of were there. But the actual feeling of the depression only lasted two or three days. Literally the next time after I started tracking that, all of the reverberations of the pastimes were now kind of sustained. To dink, to dink, to dink. And so now my depressions would only last for the time that I was actually depressed because I was like, oh, hey, I'm going to be depressed. Cool. Sit down, watch Netflix. No problem. And I just let it be. So that was a huge thing for me. I do track things as it relates to my wife and, and things that we do and things that we talk about and arguments and, and non-arguments and affection and all of that. So one of the hardest things I would say with Nomi, and I'm, I'm totally stealing this from Chris Dancy, who's like the most quantified man in the world. It's weaponizing that data. I always felt like my wife never forgot anything. And it was amazing, her ability to recall, like this one time back then I said this, you know, it was like, this is amazing. And now I kind of understand that now that I kind of have this reflection on everything that's happened. That guy Brandon mentioned, Chris Dancy, is often called the most connected man in the world. It's reported that at any given time, he has around 500 systems running to collect data about his life. Could you use the information that you create every day to make your life fundamentally better? For me, the answer was yes. He calls himself a mindful cyborg, and he's a poster boy for what's known as the quantified self movement. Brandon, who we're talking to, doesn't identify as part of the quantified self movement, but the nature of his app and his interests mean that he's regularly in touch with people who are part of the movement. So you think that tracking this down digitally uh, in front of you has somehow kind of changed the way you remember I mean, I mean, absolutely. It's, absolutely. It's actually um, changing your brain somehow. Yes. And I, I do not believe that it would happen if I was just tracking things automatically. And, and that's kind of where the divide is probably between me and most of the people that are in the quantified self arena is that they want everything to just be tracked for them. And I don't, right? That what Nomi is doing is it's, it's kind of like four seconds of awareness, I've also spoken with uh, psychiatrists who have said that they're seeing a lot of people who have problems with self-tracking and that they're kind of overdoing it and that it's kind of an illness in itself. Have you um, come across people like that? So Nomi limits you to 12 trackers out of the gate. Now, uh, you know, I share more trackers, you know, here and there. But for the most part, 12, because what happened is that people became kind of obsessed. Once they realized that they could track anything, they started tracking everything. There's a thing that has been dubbed tracker burnout, and that's when you just kind of get overwhelmed. There is kind of a nice thing about keeping score and having kind of this baseline number that kind of I can keep against my other days, right, and kind of relate to. But the one thing I don't like is when these apps start making all of these decisions for you and where the developers and the product people and all of that are the ones who are kind of trying to figure out how to mold you into a, some ideal that they have. I was actually uh, talking to my girlfriend the other day. She recently got an Apple Watch, and she said the watch keeps challenging her to beat her previous records, to do with steps and all of these different things. And I asked, like, well, what's it going for? Like, when do you win? And she's like, I don't think you ever win. I think it just keeps pushing you and pushing you. And you I, you're just going to be <laughs> running around in circles. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of thought, well, where's the responsibility in that? I mean, what's their ideal? What's the goal? And do we know the goal? And is that healthy? Yeah. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So, because everybody is so unique when it comes to this, you know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I have any idea what to recommend someone do with their life, right? I barely know how to keep my own in order. This is Think Digital Futures, where we tell stories from and about the digital age. It's not, it's not just health related. It's all about data. So whatever, you know, like I spoke uh, so many minutes today to someone. I filled up my tank with so many liters this week, you know. that spend this amount of money. I've burned this amount of calories. Peter Lydeckers and Valerie Gay are telecommunications experts at the University of Technology, Sydney. They've come across heaps of quantified selfers during the research and during the development of their own smartphone app. Quantified self can indeed be the next bulimia. Let's put it this way, for our app, My Fitness Companion, we are dealing with, occasionally with quantified self people. And it is very useful for us, because we developed the app, to get that sort of feedback. But from my experience, sometimes it's extreme. So they want features that you say, all right, yes, it might be useful for a quantified self person, but for your ordinary citizen, you might not want to do it. Do you guys live together? You're a couple? We are a couple. Yeah. It's a public secret. (laughs) Valerie and Peter's app also collects data, but it's more geared towards managing and understanding chronic illnesses. Diabetes, uh, asthma, but also just obesity, any, any chronic disease that you can use a, a monitor for. And what we do is we collect the data, we show the patients their graphs, and we allow them then to exchange that data with their doctor or their specialist. Peter's interest in using his technical skills for health started after a tragedy at his office 12 years ago. My boss, being just a couple of months older than me, he passed away from a heart attack out of the blue on a Friday evening. And um, that made a huge impact because I was already working on on mobile technology, mobile phones and things like that, and and building apps for mobile phones, but not so much health-related. And um, that really made a huge impression, and I thought, gee, you know, because afterwards we heard it could have been prevented if he gone to hospital earlier, etc., or if he had recognised the symptoms. So I thought, gee, can't we use mobile phones to sort of prevent that sort of thing to happen? We then moved back to Australia. The funny thing was that we got access to a heart monitor, a very small device that could uh, measure your ECG, you know, your your heart rate and and, and detect basically uh, any arrhythmia. So that's how it started for me to to get into this this whole mobile health technologies, trying to solve a problem that, that, that was very close to my heart. He had the typical symptoms of, of a heart attack, you know, a sore upper arm and chest pain, and he sort of ignored those signs. If you had technology that, let's say, you would, would have a mobile phone, whatever, that put your finger on the on the photo lens and the app would say, there's really something wrong here. So that might get people over that threshold and say, okay, there is something wrong. Let's go. Let's, let's do this. If it had been today, it probably would have been one of those um, 
person wearing Fitbit and so on and being a bit closer to his health, he probably would have been a bit more aware of what he can do before even he got to that point because he was getting more and more stressed and a bit less and less healthy. Their app is called My Fitness Companion. So we have a lot of users with a chronic disease. It's a lot of diabetes, high blood pressure and uh, obesity. So those are the three typical ones. And what we see indeed is those people, a lot of them, they have to monitor themselves. We have patients that have to take uh, insulin and they have to measure their blood glucose levels a couple of times a day. And quite often they have a lot of medication to take as well. So they want to monitor all that, the effect of, you know, the medication intake. Uh, how does it relate to the blood pressure? How does it relate to blood glucose level and insulin? What time do I take the insulin? How does it perform over time? So what the app does is they collect information from wherever the user wants to. So a user might say, I'm wearing a Fitbit, I also weigh myself every day, I, I take my blood pressure, this is the medication I need to take. And the app actually collects all the data, plus maybe contextual data, so we could get the pollen level, all this sort of information that's important to you, and give you the, the big picture. And then all that data, you can store it where you want. It can stay on your phone, or share it with the doctor, put it on a e-health record. When we talk to uh, professionals in the field, you always have actually two extremes. So you've got the health professionals say, well, hang on, this is data collected by the patient. I don't trust it. The more younger generation or those that are a little bit more open-minded, they say, well, it does give sort of a trend how they're going. And quite often it's better to have a you know, whole data set and then see how, how things go over time then just going to to see your gp and he or she takes a blood pressure monitor just for that particular point in time which cannot be so accurate because you know you get the white coat syndrome so things like that the camp supporting self-collected data is growing in the us you get more than 40 percent of the gps that are happy to look at uh, data collected by the user like the fitbit and brandon's app Peter and Valerie's app also tracks general health and fitness data. We actually want to go further and help people setting their own goals and uh, keep them motivated. And that's where research will come in. Because how to keep people motivated, how to help them achieving their goals when sometimes they are not realistic. Everyone wants to lose five kilos at the beginning of the year and mid-year they still haven't started and how would you keep people motivated to try to do that so that the user gets achievable goals and maybe some nudging or a bit of help a carrot so that they actually achieve their goals but um, a way that's manageable for them you've been listening to think digital futures where we tell stories from and about the digital age a collaboration between 2SER and UTS. Our theme music is by Nonima. And I'm your host, Lawrence Bull. Talk to you next week.